You're listening to Purpose Inspired, a podcast series by myself, Wayne Visser. This season is based on a book called The Quest for Sustainable Business, An Epic Journey in Search of Corporate Responsibility. Yin and Yang, Striving for Harmony, Waking Dragon of the East. Long before actually visiting China, I had, like so many before me, been fascinated by Chinese culture, history and religion. In fact, growing up, I was so inspired by Eastern philosophies that on my 21st birthday, I added Tao as a middle name. Later, in 2004, on a family road trip through California, I remember devouring a pocket edition of the Tao Te Ching, that beautiful and wise book of poetic philosophy ascribed to Lao Tzu, the reputed founder of Taoism, who lived in China in the 6th century BC. Not only was I intrigued by China's ancient philosophies, but I was also seduced by the artistic beauty of its calligraphic writing and impressed by its impending economic rise to power as one of the waking dragons of the East. I even registered for a correspondence course in Mandarin through the University of South Africa in 1994, but never completed the course. In any event, I finally made it to China in 2008, after it had, I noted in my diary, so long drifted like a cloud across the sky of my dreams. I arrived in June and gave a talk at the Europe-China International Business School Conference on Responsible Competitiveness in Shanghai. My co-author Dirk Matten and I also took the opportunity to launch our new book, The A to Z of Corporate Social Responsibility. After the event, I attended the Being Globally Responsible conference and acted as a judge for the Innovate China International MBA competition. I also met with Professor Zhu from Tongji University, since they were to be a partner, together with the University of Cambridge, in a sustainability leadership institute that was being proposed for the planned eco-city at Dongtan. As a result of these meetings, I formed the opinion that, in the medium to long term, China may very well set an example for other countries and companies in terms of sustainability and responsibility. A clue to my optimism came from something that William Valentino, CSR director for Bayer in China, said to me, and I quote, Above all else, China prizes stability, and stability in turn can only be maintained under conditions of social upliftment and environmental improvement. End quote. Despite labor conditions remaining a concern, human rights abuses may in the future become the exception rather than the rule. And I believe China's sustained economic boom is doing far more social good than harm. Reconciling its newfound addiction to growth with environmental constraints, however, may prove its most difficult challenge yet. Yet even here there are early signs that the government understands the problem and is acting decisively to address it. 
For example, when I was there, I read that Shanghai was spending 3% of its city GDP on environmental cleanup. Although it clearly has a long way to go, the smog is so bad I didn't see blue sky once during the seven days I spent there, this level of environmental spend by far exceeds anything in the West. The danger, on the other hand, is that China will get stuck in the CSR as philanthropy mode. My visit in 2008 was shortly after the devastating Sichuan earthquake, and one of the fascinating things was to see how Chinese bloggers were publicly ranking and rankling companies based on their response to the disaster. For me, that represented good news and bad news. Good news because it meant that civil society was becoming more active, and bad news because it was entrenching a philanthropic view of CSR. The other experience I had during that visit which confirmed my fears was my role on the judging panel for an MBA competition on CSR, where the project we selected, which involved setting up an e-waste recycling facility, was passed over for a philanthropic project which involved giving money for setting up a school. However, if this can evolve into a more holistic understanding of sustainable business, built on the platform of the government's policy of harmonious society, I really believe China may surprise the West. A Dangerous Opportunity In 2008, apart from visiting China, I was working on the Cambridge Top 50 Sustainability Books project, which gave me the opportunity to visit and interview some of the world's greatest thinkers on sustainability. In each interview, I made a point of asking their views on China, and a number of responses stood out to me. For example, Amory Lovins, founder of the Rocky Mountain Institute and author of Winning the Oil Endgame, shared these thoughts with me, and I quote, I recently had occasion to do the concluding keynote at the China-US Climate Summit and addressed our Chinese guests in a way I don't think they had heard before. I said, look, your society has five millennia more experience than mine. You've got five times as many brains in China as we do in America, quite possibly better ones. About 90% of the technologies underlying the Western Industrial Revolution were invented in China. You've got the only country that cuts its energy intensity over 5% a year for a quarter of a century. You came off the rails in 2002 for about five years, binging on energy-intensive basic materials, but you're fixing that now. And you're the world leader in distributed renewable sources of power. You have seven times as much of that as you do of nuclear, and you're growing it seven times faster. You've got the only country that has energy efficiency as its top development priority, not because of a treaty, but because your paramount leaders understand that you can't develop otherwise. To be sure, implementation is at an early stage. You face many challenges. Heaven is high and the emperor is far away. So a lot of things happen at a provincial and municipal level that are not as the planners in Beijing would wish. But you have better leaders than we do. You're more highly motivated and you work harder. So for all these reasons, I think we can rely on China to lead the world out of the climate mess. End quote. Once they 
got out of their shock of not being patronized, I think they rather liked this idea. Others, quite naturally, were not so optimistic. Elizabeth Economy, author of The River Runs Black, has studied China's environmental challenges in depth and believes the crisis they face is deep and intractable. The facts she cited in my interview were sobering, to say the least. She told me China has 20 of the world's 30 most polluted cities in terms of its air quality. 750,000 people die prematurely every year in China because of respiratory illnesses related to air pollution. China has only 25% of the world's average per capita availability of water. Something like almost 30% of the water that runs through China's seven major river systems and tributaries is unfit even for agriculture or industry, much less any form of drinking or fishing. A lot of Chinese water experts will say that in the northern part of the country they anticipate that between five and ten cities will completely run out of water by 2050. In fact, by 2050 China will face a water shortage equivalent to the amount of water that it consumes today. China is roughly one quarter desert and the desert is advancing somewhere between 1300 and 1900 square miles per year. In the United States, we would say roughly the size of the state of Rhode Island is lost to desert every year in China. Furthermore, 10% of China's agricultural land is contaminated with heavy metals and other contaminants. She concluded that we're just on the cusp of understanding all of the ramifications of China's environmental degradation and pollution for the health of the Chinese people. William McDonough, co-author of Cradle to Cradle, was a little more upbeat. He told me that while they're not going to become an eco-paradise overnight, nevertheless, at the senior level, they've recognized the idea of closing cycles as being a critical part of any long-term plan. The only difference is that they call it the circular economy rather than Cradle to Cradle. McDonough believes this will be driven by necessity rather than virtue. Apparently, then-Premier Wen Jiabao stated that if China continues its urbanization at the current rate, they will lose 20% of their farmland by 2020. This is a horrifying prospect, says McDonough, but from a design perspective, that gets us all excited about the idea of cities with farms on roofs and things like that. McDonough's co-author Michael Braungart laughingly told me that the Chinese ambassador claims that after Karl Marx, Cradle to Cradle is the second most printed book from Germany in China. He agrees that the Chinese think in cycles, but sees the fastest adoption of Cradle to Cradle in Taiwan. He believes that mainland China may still need to go through the eco-efficiency phase, before they accept the more radical steps needed to tackle the dilemmas of bioaccumulation of chemicals, of endocrine-disrupting chemicals, and of materials which basically interfere with biological systems. Two years is a long time in China. I returned to China in June 2010 as part of my CSR Quest World Tour, staying first on the Peking University campus in Beijing, where I was delivering a seminar. 
The campus is breathtakingly beautiful, with an old tower and a large lake where I spent many hours working and sketching. After Beijing, I took the overnight train to Shanghai and began preparing for an evening talk at the China-Europe International Business School. The next day, I met with Jacqueline Shi, founder of Women in Sustainability Action, where I gave another evening talk. While I was there, the World Expo 2010 was happening, so I stopped by for a visit. There were some fabulous buildings and exhibits, even though I only saw about a quarter of the expo site. It is probably no coincidence that the quietest pavilions were the eco-design ones, while the oil and Cisco technology displays were among the most popular. It was interesting to observe how things had changed in the two years since I had last visited. As my Chinese colleagues kept reminding me, two years in China is a long time. The first thing I noticed was that the country was awash with CSR conferences, workshops and training, so much so that generic meetings no longer pull the crowds. Companies know that CSR is important and now they want to know how to implement it. Not surprising, then, that the CSR reporting trend has finally taken off in China as well. For now, this is seen by many companies as an end in itself, often to satisfy Western markets, rather than a first step on a much longer journey. However, along with the reporting trend, there is at least more talk of strategic CSR, even though the evidence suggests this is more the exception than the rule. A company like State Grid is among the progressive minority, but most large companies are still stuck in a philanthropic project-based mode of CSR. The main drivers for sustainable business seem to have shifted as well. Whereas before it was mainly Western pressure through the supply chain, now the two main advocates seem to be the Chinese government and the workers themselves. The government has latched on to the CSR concept and is bedding down many elements in legislation, ranging from labor rights to cleaner production. There are also increasing numbers of protests by workers who are dissatisfied with the status quo. Sam Lee, founder of InnoCSR, told me the story that was in the headlines at the time of an irregular number of suicides at Foxconn which has added impetus to this growing workers' movement. As China rises as an economic power and begins to dominate many industries, there is also far more emphasis on safety and quality of products. Apart from CSR management, China is investing heavily in the market opportunities provided by sustainable business issues especially clean technology. Already in 2006, the richest man in China was reported to be Xi Shengrong, CEO of the solar company SunTech, and the richest woman, Zhang Yin, made her fortune from recycling. In a 2010 report published by the Pew Environmental Center found that China had invested $34.6 billion in the clean energy economy while the United States was only investing $18.6 billion. This explosive growth was brought home to me when, at the Women in Sustainability Action event where I was speaking, I got talking to a supplier of wind turbines to Europe. His chief complaint was that he couldn't keep up with the demand. He was turning customers away because there was already 12 months of orders in the pipeline. In a related trend, I heard far more on my 2010 trip about environmental issues, 
In fact, visiting sustainable business scholars at Peking University told me that green issues are what are getting companies away from philanthropic CSR. The World Bank estimates put environmental and associated health costs in China at 3% of GDP, with water pollution accounting for half the losses. These costs have not escaped the attention of the Chinese government, which is driving environmental legislation and incentives much more strongly now. Many Chinese talk about the Olympics as some kind of watershed on environmental issues. At the time, the government shut down many factories around the city and restricted vehicle access. As a result, Beijing enjoyed unprecedented blue skies during the 2008 Olympics. When the Olympics was over and the government prepared to go back to business as usual, the public objective, they wanted to keep their blue skies. And so at least some of the pollution control policies remained in force. Phases of CSR evolution. So yes, there have been changes over the past few years and there has been some movement towards strategic CSR. However, my overall impression is that most companies still view sustainable business as a philanthropic and public relations exercise. As Jacqueline She reminded me, CSR award schemes are booming, which is a sure sign of progress, but also of the immaturity of the market. Perhaps she is right to place her hope in the women of China to be the new pioneers. After all, there has been no shortage of testosterone-fueled growth in China and the world, which remains at the heart of the problem. We could benefit from less male yang and more female yin in China and in the CSR movement. Shortly after leaving China, my book, The World Guide to CSR, was published, which includes an excellent chapter on China by Sam Lee and Joshua Wickerman. They report on a number of interesting trends, observing that many contemporary scholars claim that China's first experience with CSR was during the Maoist era of collective agriculture and state-owned enterprises, the period of the so-called Iron Rice Bowl. During Mao's reign, companies were both organized and required to administer socially, which meant taking care of everything, including workers' food, housing and marriage arrangements. This resulted in the social phenomenon called eating from the same big pot, in other words, getting the same reward or pay as everyone else, regardless of individual performance. The 1978 reforms left a vacuum of state and company services that set the stage for debates about CSR. According to Lee and Wickerman, China's CSR has evolved rapidly with its fast-paced economic growth and can be roughly broken down into four categories. First, official skepticism and hesitant engagement between 1994 and 2004. During this stage, government attitudes towards CSR ranged from sceptical to hostile. After the economy opened in 1978, Chinese government and business attitudes focused on spurring economic growth by developing an industrial, export-oriented economy, competing on cost and quality. Hence, attitudes towards international CSR best practice, along with statutory and non-statutory standards, were seen as a means of discriminating and blocking Chinese enterprises from going out and going global, or as a pretext for denying markets for exported Chinese products. The second category was multinational-led CSR, from 
2004 to 2007. At this point, multinational corporations had been publishing CSR reports and integrating social and environmental sustainability into business strategies for several years. The first sustainability report was issued in 1999 by Shell China, and in February 2006, the first national CSR summit was held in the Great Hall of the People. The third stage was government-led CSR between 2008 and 2010. On the 1st of January 2008, the government published its notification on the issuance of guidelines on fulfilling social responsibility by state-owned enterprises. This was the first concrete guidance from the Chinese government on how it expected central state-owned enterprises to implement CSR, based on the 2006 company law that first mentioned CSR. CSR also became more linked to competitiveness. In the 2009 Fortune China survey, 81% of respondents felt that social and environmental responsibility can improve business performance in the long run, up from 67% in 2007 and 76% in 2008. As more companies operating in China go abroad, they're adopting and promoting global standards and sustainable business practices acceptable to stakeholders outside of China. The final stage is global hybrid CSR models since 2010. As Chinese companies continue to go out into the world, they are starting to pay more attention to the role of international civil society, namely groups that promote voluntary social and environmental standards, or campaign for or against companies or certify products according to values determined by multi-stakeholder governance processes. Build your dreams. Speaking of hybrid models, one of the case studies from China that I have been most engaged by is the story of Wang Chuanfu, founder of BYD, which manufactures batteries and electric cars. By 2009, Wang, aged 43, topped the annual rich list of the nation's wealthiest, with assets of 5.1 billion, jumping 102 places from the 2008 ranking. BYD is derived from the Chinese name of the company, but has come to stand for Build Your Dreams, which gives some sense of Wang's character and ambition. Starting business in 1995, it took just five years for BYD to become the largest manufacturer of mobile phone batteries in the world. Not content to dominate just one product market, in 2003 Wang bought a failing Chinese car company, and entered the automobile market. When BYD launched a plug-in electric car with a backup gasoline engine, it went ahead of GM, Nissan and Toyota. BYD's plug-in, called the F3DM, could travel further on a single charge than other electric vehicles and sold for $22,000, less than the competing plug-in Toyota Prius and the Chevy Volt. Despite Wang's meteoric rise to success in China, most people in the West had never heard of BYD. But that all changed in 2008 when investment mogul Warren Buffett bought a 10% stake in the company for $230 million. Chiefly, this was on the advice of his business partner in Berkshire Hathaway, Charlie Munger, who told Buffett 
This guy is a combination of Thomas Edison and Jack Welsh. Something like Edison in solving technical problems and something like Welsh in getting done what needs to be done. I've never seen anything like it. Wang told CNN, Urban pollution, reliance on petroleum and emission of carbon dioxide are three problems that entrepreneurs have to consider for basic social responsibility. Interestingly, he characterizes this as making our earth bluer. In a BYD video, we're told glaciers are melting, sea levels are rising. Who can guarantee that the next victims won't be us? Where is Noah's Ark to save human beings? Wang, it seems, is attempting nothing less than building that very Ark in the shape of BYD that could take us to a sustainable future. With my 2010 visit over, as I sat on the plane from Shanghai to Athens, I thought about what I was taking away. At a trivial level, I had bought some music at the airport with my leftover yuan, some Chinese pop and traditional instrumental music, a documentary on Confucius and a little book about Lao Tzu, the founder of Taoism. But at a more profound level, China had given me the gift of hope. It seems to me that the country epitomizes the Chinese word for crisis, which contains the two characters meaning dangerous and opportunity. There's a palpable sense here that the only way is up, that the future is all to play for, and that a combination of vision, national pride and hard work make all dreams possible. It all seems rather familiar, the same sort of ideals that built the American dream. I have no doubt that the 21st century will be the century of the Chinese dream. I remember reading in China Daily that the character for learning is partly derived from the non-simplified character meaning feather or wing. Hence the concept is inspired by a bird learning to fly. Nothing could be a more apt metaphor for China, which is like a young chick that has flown the nest and will soon be at home in the sky so long as its two wings social and environmental integrity, do not become damaged in the economic sun in its upward rapid flight. My visits to China have been all too few and too brief, and yet much like China on its path to embracing corporate sustainability and responsibility, I have taken the first steps towards understanding the country. And as the Tao Te Ching reminds us, the journey of a thousand miles begins with the first step.